that I want to share with us this morning. And normally, normally I do teachings. I'm known as a teacher, and so I try and craft my messages quite well, and you know, with good illustrations and good jokes or bad jokes, according to some. Um, but I don't want to teach this morning. Just during worship, I felt the Lord uh, put something on my heart. Uh, and this is more of a, a prophetic word for us as a church and for, for us as a congregation um, at this time. And so I, I pray that you wouldn't just um, open up your eyes, but op- open up your eyes and ears, but open up your heart as well. And in Hebrews 13, we have this incredible statement. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if I said I'm the same today as I was yesterday, and I'll be the same tomorrow, that wouldn't be much of a boast. That would condemn me, not praise me, right? Because unless I'm, I'm growing, unless I'm learning, unless I'm developing, unless I'm becoming more like Jesus, there's something terribly wrong with me. So for anything else in creation to say that it is eternally the same would be a problem. But it's not a problem with Jesus because Jesus is perfect. And once you're perfect, you can't become more perfect. He's all-powerful. So he can't become more powerful, and he's certainly not going to become less powerful. He knows all things. There's nothing for him to learn. The problem for you and I is I think sometimes we get to a stage where we think we know it all, especially when we're 17. One of my favorite stories is of a theology professor, and when his students would ask him really difficult questions, his favorite answer would be, all I know is that I don't know. And then one day he asked one of his students a question, and the student facetiously replied, all I know is that I don't know. And the professor said, you haven't studied enough to know that you don't know. <laughs> and for us, I think we do come to a place where, as we're, as we're Um, in relationship with the Lord and and we're learning his ways and we're reading the word, there's times where we come before him and we just have to go, God, you are so big. I don't don't know. I I just fall in wonder at your feet. But as much as we can never fully know him, we must increase in our knowledge of him because we are not all knowing, all powerful beings, but he is. And that's who we serve and that's who we trust. And that should give us an incredible security that we serve a God who is all-powerful, that is all-knowing, and he knows exactly what is going to happen tomorrow, partly because he's already been there. He knows all things actual and possible. And that, even that is hard for us to get our heads around because to, to imagine a being, a person that knows absolutely everything It's hard to comprehend, but he does. Now, does that mean that all of our futures are going to be wonderful? In one sense, yes, but in one sense, no. It's going to be wonderful if we're in Christ, because whatever happens, we're still in Christ. But he knows your tomorrow. And some people say, God will never give you more than you can handle. And I say, that's rubbish. God always gives you more than you can handle. Because it's only when you understand you can't handle it that you call on him. 
And he's calling us to be a people of faith, a people who are dependent on him. And faith isn't some intellectual understanding that he exists. Faith is staking my life on something. I stake my life on the reality of Jesus. I stake my eternity on the reality of Jesus. I stake my tomorrow. I stake my marriage and my kids on the reality of Jesus because there's something I've realized. I'm not, a good hus- I'm not a good enough husband and father. But he is. And whatever, whatever's happening in Ukraine, whatever's happening in South Africa, whatever's happening in your home, whatever's happening in your physical body is not a surprise to Jesus and not, is not bigger than him. Just over a year ago, I was in ICU. My wife got two phone calls. I nearly died twice. At one point, I was lay on the bed, and my blood pressure had disappeared. My heart rate was at about 144. My heart was about to just pack in and say, this is too much. And they were getting ready to defibrillate me. It was like an episode watching ER, but from the other side, looking up. And in that moment, in, my, in that moment, I wasn't afraid of dying. I, I promise you. But I was having a conversation with the Lord. Lord, it's your choice right now. And I submit to your choice. I'd rather stay for now because there's stuff I still need to do. The stuff, I've not, stuff you've called me to do that I haven't done. But we needn't fear death. We needn't fear unemployment. We needn't fear political and geopolitical shifts because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And one of the reasons we ask people to share testimonies is because it's faith building. Because if God can do it once, he'll do it again. It's why we read scripture, because it's the eternal word of God. And even some of the stories we read, because well, if God did that for him, he can do it for me. But Satan wants to grab our hearts with fear and uncertainty. Because fear and uncertainty often causes us to walk in a lesser degree of obedience. I've had a relationship with the Lord, and I know you're going to find this impossible to believe, but I've known Jesus for for about 50 years. First time I was a Sunday school leader was 40 years ago. When I was about 12 years old, I had prophetic words about God calling me into ministry and to be an elder. And I said, no way. You've got to be stupid to want to be an elder. And still, I think that's true on one level, isn't it? <laughs> if you desire to be an elder, you desire a noble task. But it's... And what happened is, because I was afraid of what that entailed, I ran away from it. I didn't run away from Jesus, I ran away from that calling. And somehow, in my mind, I was able to divorce my salvation from my calling. And you can't actually do that. Because when I come to salvation, when I come into a relationship with Christ, what I'm saying is, you're my Lord, you're my master. I can't say no to you. And then he says, will you be an elder? I go, no, I'd rather do something else. And I ran away from that for a long time until God in his mercy and his love ruined my life. Literally, I was penniless. I had a job 
And, but it was a commission-only job, so some days it cost me more to go to work than what I was earning. I was so broke, I remember going into a bank to draw money on my credit card so I'd have money to pay my minimum balance on my credit card. That's how broke I was. And eventually the Lord just grabbed me because I said, you know what, my life, and I was fearing the future. What's my future? I have no future. But the Lord put me in that place so that I would call upon him. And times of uncertainty are often an incredible blessing from God. Times of difficulty are incredible opportunities for God because it causes us to take stock and go back to him and say, God, why is this happening? And often the answer is because I love you. And that's why I find myself in January of 1994 leaving England and coming to South Africa because I was following the call of God on my life. And so many people said to me, Mike, are you insane? It's January 1994, for those of you who don't know the history. That was three, I arrived three months before the first fully democratic elections when everybody was convinced there was going to be civil war. Everybody was convinced there was going to be huge amounts of violence and people said, Mike, are you mad? It's not safe. And I'd fortunately come to this place where I said, you know what? I don't care what's happening in the country. The safest place I can be is where God is calling me to be. Does that mean my life is guaranteed? No. Maybe I come to South Africa, maybe I die. But I would rather die in the will of God than live outside of it. One of the most powerful statements in Scripture is when Moses is, is talking to God and God says, when you go into the, into the promised land, I'll send an angel ahead of you. And Moses goes, no. He said, unless you go with me, I will not go. And what he was saying was this, think about it. I would rather stay in a desert with you than enter the promised land without you. And how our hearts can deceive us often that they can be grabbed by a promised land that isn't of God, by the promise of milk and honey, the promises of a good job, a good career, sporting success, popularity with our friends. I was deeply, deeply unpopular at school, partly because I'm just sometimes not a nice guy. I know you're supposed to say, no, Mike, that's, no. (laughs) You're not supposed to say amen to that statement, okay? But partly because of my witness for Christ, I was in an all-boys school, and I was the only boy in my entire year who would publicly profess faith in Christ. When I was 12 years old on a school camp, two kids pulled a knife on me and said, bow down in 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 front of this fire and worship Satan, or we'll knife you. And honestly, part of me thought, well, I can do it and pretend, because it won't mean anything to me. And then I realized I can't. I can't even give the illusion of compromise in this situation. And God delivered me on that occasion. But whether he had or not, I I would have had to have said, like Daniel's three friends said, when they said to the king, Oh, king, we know that you've said that if we don't bow down to your idol, you'll throw us into a fire. But we can't do it. They said, and our God is able to deliver us, and he will. 
But even if he doesn't, we will not bow. And God is looking for that generation of people who know the God, know the, the, the power of their God and say, our God is able to save, our God is able to deliver us. And having faith, not just in the power of God, but in the benevolence of God, not only is he able to, but he will. But then also to say, it's not circumstantial. Even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. God is able to to deliver me from my current financial circumstances. And he will, but even if he doesn't, I won't bow down. God is able to deliver me from this sickness, and he will, but even if he doesn't, I won't bow down. You see, breakthrough, and, and, and Lucas touched on this earlier. I've preached on breakthrough many times about God coming and giving us a breakthrough in our circumstances. But I'm a bit stupid, and it took me until about two years ago to really grasp this concept, that when you're sick, sometimes your deliverance and your breakthrough is healing. And sometimes your deliverance and your breakthrough is the grace to live in that circumstance. Sometimes with finances, your breakthrough is money in the bank, And sometimes it's the grace to be able to live with nothing. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, and three times he asked God to take it away. And his breakthrough was when God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So we're not talking here about when life gets difficult, come to God and he'll remove all your difficulties and give you an easy life. It's when we're uncertain and we're in the midst of difficulties, come to God and trust his decision on how he's going to get you through it and cling on to him regardless. And it's often in the midst of the greatest difficulties and the greatest uncertainties that we have our greatest breakthroughs and where God comes and does something to thrust us into a greater relationship with him into more of his calling and into a new season of fruitfulness in him. I want us to look at the person of Isaiah in chapter 6. And in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so here's Isaiah, and he's already serving God to some degree. He's already a prophet. He's already in ministry. He's got a relationship with the Lord. But there's a time in the history of Israel when the king dies, and Uzziah had been king, I think, for 52 years. And at first, he'd been a really good king. And under him, uh, they'd had incredible um, military success. They were incredibly uh, prosperous. But in a time of ease and prosperity and victory, he'd become arrogant And there was a day when he went to the temple and he said, I'm going to offer incense, which wasn't his job. It was the job of the priest. And because of his pride and his arrogance, thinking, I'm a real somebody. Look at my victories. Look at my wealth. Look at my power. Instead of understanding that all of that was given by the grace of God. 
In his pride, God decided to humble him. And he got leprosy. And for the last, I think, 11 years of his life, he had to live in, a, in some house kind of outside of the city. He was still king, but his son ruled with him because he, he couldn't interact with people because of his pride and his arrogance. We've got to stay humble. I remember talking to a young man several years ago, having coffee with him, and he was quite, a, he was quite an arrogant young man. And I was trying to help him with this area of his life. And he said to me, Mike, he said, I've been praying. And I prayed to the Lord and I said, Lord, won't you please humble me? I said, oh, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Rather say, Lord, I will humble myself. Scripture says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will raise you up. But there's a it doesn't say this, but the opposite is often true. If you raise yourself in the eyes of the Lord, he'll humble you. And because he was arrogant and he didn't humble himself, the Lord had to humble him, and it was a horrible, horrible time for him. I said, man, it would have been just so easy if you'd humbled yourself. And so this is a time of great uncertainty, not just for Isaiah, but for the entire nation. What's coming next? What's the new king going to be like? Are we going to be as prosperous? Are we going to be as successful? Are we, you know, we, we don't know. And at that time, Isaiah as a prophet of the Lord, goes to the temple and there, the first thing that happens is he has a revelation of Jesus. And we know this is Jesus because it says so in John's gospel. In John chapter 12, we read, I think in verse 41, Isaiah spoke because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And so Isaiah walks into the temple and he has a revelation of Jesus. And Proverbs tells us that for a lack of vision or a lack of prophetic revelation, the people perish or the people cast off restraint. And this vision that he has is the same word. He's having a revelation of Jesus. And without that, God's people cast off restraint. And that word, casting off restraint, is the same we read in Exodus when Moses comes down from getting the Ten Commandments and the people have just gone wild worshipping idols and falling into all kinds of debauchery and, and, and ungodly behavior. And what Proverbs is saying is, in a sense, when we don't have a revelation of Christ, what we end up doing is worshipping what we can see. And so we cast off the godly restraints that we have and we end up perishing. So we worship our jobs, our relationships, our kids, our reputations, our politics. You know, what do I put my trust in? If you're putting your trust in a political party, I don't care which political party it is, it's going to let you down. It doesn't have the answer. But we need to be a people, and this isn't a call just for prophets. It's only in the sense that we're all supposed to be a prophetic people. We're all supposed to be those who've got an ability to communicate the heartbeat of God to others. And there is a, a requirement for each of us that we have a revelation of Christ. And sometimes, in times of peace, we lose that because we focus on all the nice things we have. And sometimes in times of difficulty, we lose it because we start looking at our circumstances. Like Peter 
when he was walking on water and then his focus moved from Jesus to the waves. And when his focus was not Jesus, when his focus was the waves, he began to sink. And the Lord says in the, in the time of our uncertainties and difficulties, even in our trials and tribulations, we need more than ever to be seeking a revelation of Jesus. And so the first thing about Isaiah is, is that in this time of difficulty and uncertainty, he has a revelation. He is confronted by the person of Jesus. And I want to say this, he's confronted by the person of Jesus. He's not confronted by a theology about Jesus. People often call me a theologian and I hate that. No, I don't hate it. I'd prefer to be described as something else. Because theologians for me are people who, who just love like debating issues of doctrine and theology and, you know, did Adam have a belly button and how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and all those really life-changing questions. I'm not in love with theology, I'm in love with Jesus. And theology is a tool that helps me to deepen my relationship with Jesus. And some people are in love with the Bible. I'm not in love with the Bible, I'm in love with the author of the Bible. I love the Bible because it reveals its author. In some churches, the Holy Trinity is the Father, Son, and the Holy Scripture. And I'm not, I, I value highly Scripture because God has revealed himself to me through it. The facts and the details and the theology of Scripture are secondary to the person of God. And it is possible that our theology, we can worship theology instead of worshiping Jesus. We can worship church instead of worshiping Jesus. We can worship worship. Have you ever thought about that? Especially for musical types. We can be so into the music instead of the music being a tool to reach the person. We need first to be a people who are constantly confronted by the person of Jesus. And you know, whilst I think most of us pray for that, and many of us have experienced it, it's not always a pleasant experience. Sometimes it's scary. I was saying to Lucas before the meeting started, there's two kinds of fear. There's fear that stops you living, and there's fear that stops you dying. So having a healthy fear of heights is a good thing. I, I like that sometimes. I remember a few days before I got married, uh, my family, had, my parents had come to South Africa for the wedding, and we were taking them on some tourist places up in Mpumalanga. I was at Bible College in White River. So we're going to God's Window and uh, the Three Rondavals, all that area. And at one point in this valley, there was a beautiful view and I wanted a great picture. And there was a, there was a barrier there and I got, no, I'm just not getting quite the, quite the right angle. And there was a rocky outcrop just the other side of the barrier. I thought, if I stand on that rocky outcrop, I'll get a much better angle. So 
Over the barrier I went, and I'm on this outcrop, and I'm taking pictures. And my wife sees me, and my wife goes berserk. What are you doing? You're going to die. And my, my mother sees me, and she's, what are you doing? You're going to die. And I get all upset with them. I'm like, no, I'm perfectly safe. Look how big this thing is. I know how to walk. I'm not going to fall. And we had a bit of a fight, and I was convinced I was right. They were convinced they were right. And then three days later, I was reading a newspaper about a tourist. Tourist falls to his death in Umpamalanga. In exactly that place. And what had he done? He'd done exactly what I'd done. And suddenly I'm like, okay, you're right. (laughs) See, in that instance, I didn't have enough fear. It took me to a place that put my life in danger. My mother, on the other hand, has a fear of heights. So she wouldn't even go anywhere near the barrier. She didn't get a, a proper look at the... And she couldn't really look at the thing because the heights and... Oh, she missed out on some beauty and some wonder because of her fear. So there's two kinds of fear in this life. And I want to say this, a fear of what the world can do to you, a fear for your finances, a fear for your life, all of those things will stop you truly living. But a fear of God will stop you dying and allow you to experience life in its fullness. And so Isaiah has this confrontation, and I can guarantee you he felt afraid. And some people have this theology, no, we shouldn't fear God. You know, that's, uh, I look at the Apostle John, who wrote John's gospel. And in John's gospel, he describes himself as the apostle that Jesus loved. He's the one that at the Last Supper leant against the chest of Jesus. No human being in the history of mankind has had as intimate, physical interaction with Jesus as John the Apostle. John understood intimacy. He understood the love of Jesus. He, he could come into the presence of Jesus and feel absolute acceptance and love. But then when he wrote the book of Revelation, he says he has a vision of Christ in his glory, and he fell on the floor as one dead. The same person understood that he could hold two things in tension at the same time, that there's times where Jesus reveals himself in such a way that I fall on my face in fear of the almighty God, and there are other times when Jesus reveals himself and there's a moment of real intimacy and sweetness, and if it's only one or the other, you're going to get yourself into trouble. But the Lord wants to reveal himself in his fullness. And here we see this where even the angels reveal themselves to to Isaiah. And he says there were seraphs, each with six wings. And they were calling, holy, holy, holy. And at the sound of the voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. The temple was a big place. These doorposts were big. And just the voices of angels cause that place to shake. Angels are not little babies with wings with a bow and arrow, floating on clouds and playing a harp. Angelic beings are incredibly powerful. And if an angelic being revealed itself today in all of its glory, most of us would be scared spitless, and quite rightly. There is a power and a majesty to God that, that puts us in our place, not to keep us from living, but to show us how powerful and almighty our God truly is. I 
If I was going to walk down a dark alley at night, I might be a little bit nervous. And if a guy jumped out with a gun and said, I'm going to shoot you, do you think I would be in fear? Yeah. Why would I fear him? Because I've got absolutely faith in, absolute faith in his ability to shoot me. But imagine, just before I walk down that dark alley, the Lord appears to me. He says, Mike, you're about to walk down this dark alley, and a guy's going to jump out with a gun. But don't worry, I'm going to guard you with my... And suddenly I see all these angels surrounding me. Now, do you think my attitude walking down that dark alley is different? Why? Because my faith in the angels and in the Lord supersedes my faith in a man with a gun. And that dark alley is our lives. In our lives. It might not literally be a man with a gun, but it might. But we don't know what, what awaits us down this dark, scary alley. It could be our boss calling us into his office and saying, I have to let you go. It could be a doctor saying, I've got some bad medical news. It could be you're comfortable in your bed and then you hear a foreign country is invading. It could be any of these things, and none of us know what tomorrow holds, but he does. And we've got to have those meetings with the Lord where he says, you're walking down a dark alley. Let, I want you to know that I'm with you. And whatever's waiting for you down there, I'm bigger than. I hope this is making sense. Because he lives... I can face tomorrow because he lives or fear is gone. Because I know, yes, I know, he holds the future. And life is worth living just because he lives. I honestly don't know how you live life without a trust in Jesus. So, literally everything can go wrong at any time. It must be an incredibly fearful thing to go through life without a faith in Jesus. I don't fear tomorrow. Woe to me, I am ruined, says Isaiah in verse 5. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And his first response is, Man, I thought I was a good guy. I'm a prophet of God, but suddenly I get a revelation of the holiness of God and I realize how far, fall, how far short of that I fall. And again, there's a beautiful picture here that we are not excluded from the presence of God by our sin. We can come into the presence of God with our sin, but then he desires that in that place as he makes things, makes us aware of things, then we allow him to deal with that sin. So he accepts us as we are and then changes us because he doesn't want us to stay as we are. And some people are afraid of God in a bad way. That there's a, there's a, a reluctance or, no, or a fear of coming into his presence because of an awareness of our own shortcomings. And this morning, Jenny brought a prophetic word that some people were almost in a spectator bystander mode. And some of that is, some of us maybe need to learn how to come into the presence of God. Others are afraid to come into the presence of God. 
Don't be afraid of coming into the presence of God because of rejection. You won't be rejected in his presence. You will be changed. Now, if you never want to be changed, then have a fear of coming into God's presence. If you want to stay as you are, then don't come into the presence of God. But if you have a desire to be changed, and in this place, we see exactly this happening with Isaiah, that one of the angels, one of the seraphs, comes to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar. And this is probably from the altar of incense, not from the, the, the brazen altar. And the altar of incense uh, represents prayer and worship. And the angel comes with a hot coal and touches it against the lips of Isaiah. Now, if I said I've got a hot coal here, I want to touch it against somebody's lips, can I have a volunteer? <laughs> in a spiritual sense, yes, Lord, I want to be cleansed. But in a purely physical sense, that's like, um, yeah, no thank you. Because sometimes we used to, I've not heard Andrew say this for a long time, but he used to say it often, the truth hurts and then it sets us free. And sometimes there is a little bit of pain involved in understanding that, a, that there's an area in my life that's offended Jesus. Or, but we've got to allow him to come and touch those areas that are sensitive in us in order to cleanse us. And so we see that Isaiah is confronted by Jesus and then he's cleansed by Jesus. He's consecrated. He's made holy. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Last week, we were on a leaders' camp, and a prophetic word came, and I think this is, this is one of the saddest things in the kingdom with many Christians that I've come across, and I think it applies to a number of people here, that theologically, you understand that Jesus died for you and took away your sin. You understand that Jesus has forgiven you, but you haven't forgiven yourself. You're still walking in shame and guilt. And both things are dealt with here. Yes, your sin has been atoned for, but your guilt has been removed. One of the things that sometimes Satan tries to get me with is a fear of stepping out because of how many times I've failed. Who are you to preach? I know what you're really like. Yeah, I know what I'm really like as well but I also know what Jesus is like. I'm preaching here not as like the most spiritual, holy person. I'm here preaching as somebody who's an expert on failure. I'm an expert on forgiveness. Not because I'm really good at forgiving people, but I've been forgiven so many times. Time after time after time over the last 50 years, I have failed him. I told you the story of how I was threatened with a knife and I didn't bow down. You go, what a hero. The problem was over the next year at school, slowly I got quieter and quieter and more and more compromised because a knife to my body I could resist, but the day-to-day -day rejection and loneliness and mocking got to me. So I wasn't a hero. Just Satan needed a different strategy. And I failed. I failed the Lord. I failed to share the gospel where I needed to. I failed to stand for truth. I failed to stand for justice. But guess what? I repented and the Lord cleansed me. 
and your past failures do not disqualify you from future use. But your own guilt and shame might, unless you let the Lord remove it and deal with it. And so Isaiah is confronted in his time of anxiety and a time of change and a time of the unknown. He's confronted by Jesus. He's cleansed by Jesus. And then he's commissioned by Jesus. Because he hears a voice and the voice says, who will go for us? Who shall we send? And maybe he wasn't the smartest person in the world right now. Maybe he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. Because he hears, who shall we send? And he goes, me, Lord. He hasn't heard were yet. But I love that heart. And sometimes the Lord will test us in calling us before we know what he's calling us to. Partly because he wants to test our faith, and partly because he knows that if we know what he's calling us to, that would scare us spitless. Lucas, be honest. If 10 years ago you'd known where the Lord would have you now doing now, how willingly would you have said yes? It would have scared you silly, right? And so the Lord says, no, no, just who can, can I send you? Yes, okay. Then wherever I'm sending you, I'm with you. I tried everything to avoid the call of God on my life, being an elder. I ran away from it for years. You have to be stupid. The pain of being an elder, the ingratitude people show, the offense people take, the loneliness. I'd seen it. I'd seen it in churches. Church splits and all of that. And then to cap it all off, they don't even pay you that well. You've got to be stupid, man. And then the Lord grabbed my heart. I can't divorce my life and my salvation from my calling. I've got to be obedient. And if he, even if he's calling me to the worst thing in the world, that in him is better than my idea of success. I shared this story last week, but we say, Lord, any time, any place, anywhere, and some of us have got a very romantic idea of that. Lord, I want to go and, and, and preach in America. Lord, I want to go and, you know, I, I want to be an elder in Josh Jair, and I want, to, I want to work apostolically in the nations, and it all sounds glorious and wonderful to many of us. Do you know that in India, when people convert to Christianity in some towns and some villages, they are rejected to such a degree that they lose their jobs, they lose their status in society, and they become the lowest rung on the ladder. And basically, the only work they're allowed to do in some places is clean latrines. All they're allowed to do is clean up human poop. And many of these people do that because of their faith in Christ. They'll never preach to the nations. You'll never hear the name. They'll never write a book. They'll never become famous. But day after day, they'll wake up and clean latrines, praising Jesus. And say, what an honor it is to pay the price. Oh, man, I suck so bad. 
See, God calls some people to clean human poop for the rest of their lives. And that is the most glorious calling. And if you ask me, will I see that person in heaven? The answer is no, I won't, probably, because they'll be so close to the throne of God, and I'll be so far away. Man, our lives we hold too dear. The things of this world we hold too dear. And when, our th- when things get shaken, as they are at the moment, whether it be COVID, Ukraine, the economy, family, health, whatever it is, God shakes and he says he shakes so he can find out what stands. This is a time of uncertainty for many. But I honestly believe in many ways this time of uncertainty is a grace gift from God. And all of us need grace. And what are we going to do when our testing comes? What are we going to do when, um, when fear knocks at the door? What are we going to do when we're faced with the fiery furnace? I hope that our response is to find ourselves seeking the face of the Lord and asking for his grace. Many years ago, a man called Keith Green wrote a song. How many of you love Keith Green? What a hero, what a legend. And he wrote a song, and I'm not going to sing it to you, that would be too much, okay? (laughs) But he's speaking these words from the point of views of somebody who's been saved a while and who who came to Jesus full of passion and, and full of full of commitment and full of any time, any place, anywhere. And he says, Lord, the feelings are not the same. I guess I'm older. I guess I've changed. And how I wish it had been explained that as you're growing, you must remember that nothing lasts except the grace of God by which I stand in Jesus. I know that I would surely fall away except for grace by which I'm saved. And Lord, I remember that special way I vowed to serve you when it was brand new. But like Peter, I can't even watch him pray one hour with you. And I bet I could deny you too. Well, nothing lasts except the grace of God by which I stand in Jesus. And I'm sure that my whole life would waste away except for grace by which I stand. In times of difficulty, uncertainty, economic pressures, physical illness, persecution, temptation, failure, sin, these are the times where we need to say, Lord, I need to run into your presence. I need to find your face and I need to lay hold of your grace, your supernatural empowering to do that which I cannot do. Because apart from your grace, I cannot even stand, let alone respond to your call. Because nothing lasts except the grace of God. Nikki brought a scripture, God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of love, power, and a sound mind. And I think a key part of that scripture is spirit of fear. Sometimes fear isn't just a natural emotional reaction. Sometimes fear is a spiritual intimidation tactic of the enemy. Some people here have been fearful, and maybe it's been quite a natural reaction to what you're going through. But I believe in general, the enemy has been coming with a spirit of fear to intimidate, to cause us to shrink back, and cause us to change focus from Jesus to the waves. And the Lord this morning is calling us to turn our face back. Turn our face back to him. Not to focus on our circumstance. To be a people who are willing to be confronted by the person of Jesus Christ. Be cleansed by him. And then be commissioned by him. To be a voice of hope in a hopeless generation. Somebody asked me the other day, this invasion of Ukraine, do you think it's the start of the end times? And my answer is no, the start of the end times happened at the days of Pentecost. (laughs) And I don't know how many days we've got left. I don't know when Jesus is going to return. But I know that this generation has only got this generation. I know this generation needs us. I know we're living in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. But in some ways, I think that's a good thing. Because in a world that just everybody thinks they've got the gospel, it's very hard to see people saved. But the Lord is calling a clear line between those who love him and those who hate him, those who belong to him and those who don't. And this morning, his voice is, Won't you come and find my face and allow me to come and touch your lips? And once you've been confronted and cleansed and you hear my voice saying, who shall I send? What will your response be? Will you be like Isaiah and say, here am I, send me. so many people in this room I see right now that the Lord is desperately eager to send you and you've disqualified yourselves for whatever reason and he's just waiting for you to raise your hand and say here am I, send me